invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn once again to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. For a couple of years now, we have been in Matthew, as many of you know, and some of our listeners that might be just coming in are finding out. We go verse by verse through the Word of God so that we understand it in all of its fullness. And it's an amazing thing to me to realize that through divine revelation, God gives us an opportunity to have access into the very throne room of His sovereignty so that we can have a glimpse of His plan of redemption whereby He will glorify Himself and redeem all who trust in Him. So this is part five of a series in Matthew 24 which is many times called the Olivet Discourse, part five of Christ's greatest prophetic discourse. Now, before we look at verses 16 through 28 this morning, I have a number of things that I want to share with you to give you some context. First of all, think with me. Since he was first cast out of the presence of God, Satan's all-consuming passion has been to oppose the plan of God, the plan of redemption, and to somehow steal His glory for Himself. We see this all through the Word of God. He was the originator of sin in the garden, and throughout redemptive history, Satan, along with his minions, have used the tactics of lies, deceptions, temptation, guilt, fear, false doctrine, you name it, sickness, envy, pride, slander, it goes on and on, even murder to thwart the purposes of God. We see this especially in the history of Israel, God's covenant people. Now, it's interesting, when we look at the Word of God, we understand that the Jews were meant to be a missionary people. In fact, Jesus said in John 4:22 that salvation is of the Jews. It's from the Jews. And therefore, the Jews are going to always be a target of the one who opposes God and opposes his plan of redemption. Since the call of Abraham, Satan has tried to prevent God's plan of redemption by even eliminating the covenant people, the chosen people, so that if they weren't there, if they aren't there, then the Savior from which they were to arise would, would, would never exist. They spent 400 years in oppression in Egypt. They were constantly threatened when they came into the promised land by the overwhelming enemies that were there. And as we look at it, nothing has changed to this day. God warned them of the consequences of their disobedience. For example, in Deuteronomy 28.63, He said, And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And indeed, that is what has happened because of their idolatry. You will recall that 
God allowed Satan to unleash his fury upon them, and they were either captured or banished by Nebuchadnezzar with the Assyrians, later on with the Babylonians. By the way, the same people that are in Iraq and Iran to this day. In fact, if you look in Zechariah 3 and verse 1, even in the restoration, when they first came back with Zerubbabel, we read how Satan, the malicious accuser, stood in the very presence of the Lord to malign Israel and demand that God forsake them. But God, as you know, has remained faithful to them and faithful to his covenant. Later on, they were enslaved and even slaughtered by the Romans, and on and on it goes. In fact, history records an endless battle for their survival. By A.D. 800, the persecution of Jewish immigrants by the medieval church in northern Europe was in full swing. By 1148, the Jews in Spain had to flee to Egypt, to Portugal, to Greece, to Turkey, and to the Netherlands in order to avoid being burned. By 1215, the Magna Carta in England legalized injustice to the Jews, towards the Jews, and the suffering continued. The French hated them as well. So did the Germans. So did the Poles. In fact, an entire Jewish community was burned in Strasbourg in 1349. In the Polish regions that were later seized by the Russians, the Russian government would systematically exterminate the Jews. And all through Europe, Europe they were forced to live in fear and forced to live in the squalor of the ghettos. The great Chimelniki massacre in Poland and Lithuania between the years of 1648 and 1656 killed untold thousands of Jews. Historically, they have lived under the sword of Gentile domination. As we look through history, we see that they had to flee to Africa, China, Mexico, South America, even India. And dear friends, nothing short of divine judgment and satanic hatred can explain the relentless scourge of anti-Semitism that has plagued these people. But I would also hasten to add that nothing short of divine intervention can explain their continued survival and their protection. Indeed, as the psalmist has said in Psalm 121.4, He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We saw Satan vent his hatred of God and God's people in the Holocaust. Six million Jews were exterminated in the pogroms of Hitler's Nazi empire between 1933 and 1945. In fact, uh, they have discovered some long hidden Soviet documents that suggest that the death toll was much higher than that. And it's amazing that right after that, just in 1948, Israel becomes a nation. Can you imagine that? Inconceivable. Proving Satan is merely God's ape. He's allowed only to act within the purview of his will. 
Dear friends, the Jewish people have been and remain to this day, as Paul said in Romans 10.21, a disobedient and obstinate people. For over 4,000 years, from Abraham to, to this very day, God has pre- preserved them, preserved His chosen people. Now you think about it. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Kenites, the Canaanites, they're all gone. They've all disappeared. But not the Israelites. It is said that Frederick the Great reputedly asked his chaplain to give him one commanding evidence for the existence of God. And the chaplain replied, quote, The amazing Jew, Your Majesty. To this day, they remain a threatened people, as I detailed in great length last Sunday in part four of this series. I was reading this week, by the way, there, uh, there is an anti-Semitic computer game that's being sold in Europe. And in that game, the player assumes the role of a Nazi commandant in a concentration camp exerting power over the Jewish people. And you gain points for the amount of torture that you can exert over your captives. You gain points for doing things that they did in Nazi Germany, extracting gold from their teeth and making lampshades out of their skin and selling their remains for soap and so on. But dear friends, they still are around. They're not only around in the background, they are at the foreground of music, literature, science, and of the world political scene and the world economy. God has not abandoned His people, even though they have forsaken Him. In fact, if we were to look at Romans 11, you need not turn there. But it makes this very clear in verse 1 of Romans 11. We read how the God has not rejected his people. Has he? The question is asked. May it never be. Verse 2 tells us that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He literally foreloved. And in verse 8 it goes on to say that God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And in verse 11, we read that salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's us, us, folks. It's come to us to make them, the Jews, jealous. And in verses 17 through 24, we read that some of them, certainly not all of them, but, but some of the branches were broken off of the olive tree, allowing the wild branches of the Gentiles to be grafted in to that root of blessing. So now we too, as Gentiles, can be saved by grace through faith. And it's fascinating in verse 23 of Romans 11, we read that that God who preserves them will someday graft them back into that olive tree. And in verse 25, God warns against Gentile pride. And here's what He says. He describes a mystery lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved. 
But dear friends, before this occurs, before God's covenant people ultimately look on him whom they have pierced, Jesus warns that they will experience a time of persecution and tribulation that will exceed anything in history. Satan will be allowed to unleash his full fury against the covenant people and against other believers on the earth during that time in accordance to his divine judgment, both Jew and Gentile. Now, by way of review, remember that in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14, Jesus is answering his disciples who are really representatives of the Jewish remnant that will be alive during the time of the tribulation. He's answering their questions regarding the nature and the duration of Israel's desolation, of which Jesus has pronounced. And Jesus has described six very specific signs that those of that day will need to look for, signs that will occur just before his coming. These he calls in verse 8, birth pangs, that of false messiahs, nations at war, natural disasters of epic proportions, persecution of tribulation saints, defection of and betrayal by false believers, and mass evangelism. And we're going to see a few more that he adds today. And as we discovered last week, the greatest calamity, the greatest suffering will be triggered by what he says in verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. When you see literally the abomination that causes desolation, and we studied last week Daniel 9:27 and other passages and there we read the template to which the Lord refers in order to understand the sequence and the events of this prophetic revelation in Daniel 9:27 we read about this abomination which makes desolate there the spirit of God speaks through Daniel the prophet and says, and he, referring to Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, referring to the Jews, for one week, or in other words, for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in the middle of the week, in the middle of... of of these of, of this heptad of these the, these seven years, in other words, after three and a half years, the satanically possessed Antichrist will seize the temple that has been restored by the Jews and betray the Jews and demand to be worshipped. And he will do this for forty two months, according to Revelation thirteen five, which is the last half of the seven years. Now, if I can digress for a moment, it's interesting. In Revelation 11, 1 through 2, John is given a vision of the temple that will, will be rebuilt during that time. Um, instructions on the measuring of the temple that will be built in the first half of the tribulation. There's a fascinating omission there that I believe in, in verse 2 that I believe suggests the church is no longer around. He says there, that you are to leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. That's interesting. This refers to the court of the Gentiles. 
that was located outside the courtyard. That's where the brazen altar would have been. And this would have was a was a place that was forbidden for the Gentiles. It was forbidden territory. In fact, if they were to enter that, it would defile the temple. And the Romans even gave the Jews the authority to execute Gentiles that entered into that place. Now, although there will be Gentiles who will continue to be saved during the tribulation, most of them during this time will be allied with Satan and with the Antichrist and their hatred of the covenant people Israel. And I find it interesting here, this marked distinction between Gentiles and Jews, I believe, suggests further that the church is no longer around because in the church there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, as the New Testament tells us, Colossians 3.11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16 tells us the same thing. So, the unbelieving Jews are apparently alone in their beliefs during this time. They're isolated in their stand against Gentile hatred, Gentile persecution. So, the outer court of the Gentiles will not be allowed to exist in this temple. Why? Well, the end of verse 2 in Revelation 11 tells us, "...because it has been given to the nations." And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Again, three and a half years, that three and a half year career of the Antichrist. Now, may I note once again that this horrific time of unparalleled oppression for the Jew, against the Jew, will ultimately be the culmination of what is called the times of the Gentiles. That's what we're living in now. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 21, 24, Describing this time, it says they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So, again, back to the abomination that causes desolation, that is the, the event that triggers what, dis, what the Lord describes in Matthew 24, verse 21, as the great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. By the way, the first four seal judgments in Revelation parallel this, that of, of false peace, of war, of famine, and of death. All of those take place in the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years what Jesus has called the beginning of birth pangs. But this first half was certainly the beginning of that time of severe trials for the people. I believe it's the beginning of God's wrath. For indeed, it is God that holds the seven-sealed scroll, the title of the universe, the title deed of the universe, and it is the Lamb who unrolls it. The Holy Spirit steps aside now and He... He, he allows Satan and mankind to deceive and to kill. And Jesus has described the events of this time in the first seven verses. In other words, in the first half of, of the tribulation, in the first seven verses of Matthew 24, you're to look for false messiahs, nations at war, natural disasters of epic proportion. But now, after the abomination of desolation, in the second half of the tribulation, just like a woman in labor the frequency and the severity of birth pains will increase as God pours out the full fury of His wrath. And there, 
the other three signs that Jesus mentioned will begin to occur in full force. Persecution of tribulation saints, defection of and betrayal by false believers, and even mass evangelism. Now, get the scene here. Bear with me. The temple is rebuilt. The sacrificial system is back in place. Along with all of the Sabbath restrictions, the feasts and convocations of Leviticus 23 are now back in full swing being observed. The nation of Israel has negotiated a contract for protection from all of the Gentiles that would seek to destroy them, a contract for protection from the Antichrist. And then, lo and behold, the Antichrist betrays them, demands that he be worshipped. That's the abomination that causes desolation. And then he seeks to kill them. And Daniel describes his violent career in Daniel 8.24 as that as Antichrist being the head of the Western Confederacy He says that he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, the people that have been set apart. And now, dear friends, consistent with the Savior's infinite compassion for his own, he warns the Jewish remnant through these representatives, through the disciples that he's talking with. He warns the Jewish remnant who will someday trust in Him as their Messiah. He warns them what they must do to survive this time of unparalleled persecution. That leads us now to the text. Let's actually begin in verse 15 of Matthew 24. Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which it was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If, therefore, they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, let's look more closely at what the Lord is telling the folks of this day. In verse 16, he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The word flee in Greek is fuego. We get our word fugitive from that. And think about this now. Having been cast down to earth, knowing that his time is short, the satanically possessed Antichrist, desperate for revenge and insane with a jealous rage, is now demanding to be worshipped. And he will, along with his demonic colleagues, 
seek to destroy this covenant people once and for all. Obliterate them. Get rid of them. And so they must flee to the safety of the mountains. When you go to that region of the country, you can see very quickly the mountains and the cliff caves, especially east and south of Jerusalem. They are rugged beyond description, virtually inaccessible, an uninhabitable part of the earth, uninhabitable apart from divine intervention. It's interesting, in Revelation 12, 14, we have a little more insight about the providential protection that will occur during this time. There the Spirit of God reveals to John in his vision. He says, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. By the way, the woman is a reference to Israel in that text. In order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Again, describing that last period of the tribulation. By the way, some people say that this might be a reference to Israel's airline, uh, their main airline, El Al. I doubt that very seriously. As you look at the text, you see that for one thing, there's no time to do anything except run for your life. Certainly not grab your bags, take a bus to the airport, wait to get on the plane. Beyond that, Antichrist and his cohorts are going to have control of all of that. And then I would have to ask the question, if it was an airplane, I know that region of the country. I've been there. Where are you going to land that thing? Are you going to have the people parachute out? It makes no sense to me. But other, other than that, we don't know for sure. But certainly, as I think about the Bible and try to let the Bible interpret itself, in the Old Testament, we see that wings are always a picture of divine protection. And this is probably a reference to the angel Michael. He is the great protector of Israel who will perhaps supernaturally transport and protect the chosen remnant during this time of, of unparalleled savagery. But we just don't know. In verses 17 through 18, it talks about those relaxing on their housetops. That, that if, if, if you hear of this de desolation, what the Antichrist is doing, you better run for your life. Don't even, don't even stop to get your provisions. Just go. By the way, even to this day, that's what they do. They have um, a law there in the land. You can only go three stories high. And they usually have these black uh, plastic canisters on top and the sun heats the water and that's how they get hot water. But that's also a real nice place to go. Um, to get a breeze and to relax. I've been on tops of those roofs um, with uh, not just the Israeli people, but with uh, some of the, the Bedouin people. And that's a kind of a place of lounging. And he's basically saying, if you're relaxing and you hear of this, you better run for your life. Verse 19, we see such deep compassion for that the Lord has for mothers and infants who will not be able to flee as quickly as others. He even says in verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in the winter. That's the rainy season, a time of cold, sometimes of snow, and extremely difficult to survive. Pray that it won't even be on the Sabbath. You've got to understand that Shabbat, even to this day in Israel, is a time where the whole place shuts down. 
But how much more so when Old Testament Judaism will be reinstituted with all of its legalism back in place. Those Orthodox Jews, perhaps of that day, will, will be, many of them will be convinced that Antichrist is not going to harm them, so you don't need to flee. And they may be prone to act as they did in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and in some places to this day, to react in violence for those who would dare defile Shabbat. So Jesus is warning the perils of that day, and this is the bottom line, they are going to be so severe. The danger is going to be so great. Do not risk anything. Don't risk being caught by trying to gather supplies or, or possessions or whatever, or, or whatever. Just run for your life. Trust me, I'll protect you. And then next we see something interesting. Jesus gives what I would see as maybe four more signs to signal his soon return. The first one is in verse 21. I would call this the sign of unprecedented death and destruction. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Dear friends, this Holocaust is described not only by the Lord Jesus in this text, but now catch this. Also by Daniel, as well as John in the book of Revelation. Daniel 7.25 tells us, And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, referring to Antichrist. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his time for a time, times, and a half a time. That, by the way, you, you see the same thing said over and over in various prophecies. A time is one year, times is two years, and a half a time is a half a year. Three and a half years, the last part of the tribulation. In Revelation 11, verse 2, we talked about that earlier, describing the temple. It has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Again, three and a half years. By the way, if I can give you a footnote once again. This is obviously not a reference to what occurred at A.D. 70 when Rome came in and, and took over Jerusalem. And I've detailed that, and I'm not going to go over that again in, in part two of this series. But, but as I look at this, and, and I say this with all due respect, I, I believe it takes a Herculean effort of tortured exegesis to somehow squeeze these events into A.D. 70. It just simply does not fit the facts of Scripture. In verse 22, we read more about this time of death and destruction that the, of which the Lord warns. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. This is interesting, curious statement. Those days shall be cut short. Well, this could refer, I suppose, to this whole three and a half year, maybe even the whole seven year period of tribulation. The word cut short in Greek means to, to, to shorten or to stop abruptly or to stop instantly. But frankly, in my mind, that interpretation begs for relevance since this is already a predetermined period of time. Seven years, especially the last part, three and a half years. So I think it's better to understand this in a very literal way unless those days referring to actual 24-hour periods of time, daylight hours, unless they are shortened. And perhaps this is to provide the safety of the cover of darkness for those that are fleeing. By the way, he has done this before. 
He did this with the Egyptians, with the Egyptian charioteers. Do you remember when the Jews were fleeing in the Exodus and the pillar of cloud came up um, between the Egyptian charioteers and the Jews and in God's infinite glory and in his power? In Exodus 14, we read how that that was a a cloud that gave them cover of darkness. It was dark to the Egyptians, but it was light to the Jews. So we see this same concept at that time. And let me give you three other texts that I believe we find in Revelation that seem to strengthen this this possibility that when Jesus saying, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Referring to maybe the literal 24-hour days. You will remember that in the sixth seal judgment in Revelation, when it is unleashed upon the world, Revelation 6, 12 through 14 says that there will be a great earthquake. Now listen to this. And the sun will become like blood and the stars of the sky will fall to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky will be split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Here we see a catastrophic disruption of the normal lights, certainly the light of the sun. In Revelation 8.12, we see a a similar type of description describing uh, upheavals within the luminaries. There we read, a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars will be smitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it. And the night in the same way. Likewise, I find it interesting in Revelation 16 and verse 10. There is a description of the fifth bowl judgment. You will recall there are seal judges, trumpet judgments, and then finally bowl judgments. And the fifth bowl judgment we read, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. That's the kingdom of Antichrist, who is the beast. Well, friends, bottom line, I don't know for sure what that means. But certainly it is tenable to assume that it means that those 24-hour period of time will be shortened. Can't say for sure, but one thing we know for sure, God is going to protect his people. Otherwise, no life, as Jesus says, would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. By the way, it's interesting there. It's the first time in the New Testament that the word elect is used. Elect all through the word of God refers to all whom God has sovereignly predestined, sovereignly chosen to be saved, both Jew and Gentile. But then Jesus goes on to describe yet another sign, not only the sign of death and destruction, but secondly, what I would call the sign of demonic deception. Notice beginning in verse 23 through verse 27. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ and there he is, do not believe him and so on. It describes those that are coming along and trying to say that they are the Christ or there is the Christ over there. This is demonic deception, dear friends. Now think about this. And I believe this is a most compassionate act of the Lord, once again, warning the people of that day. Think what it would be like during that day. Think if suddenly you understand that Antichrist is out to kill you. 
and you have grabbed your children and maybe your pregnant wife and you are fleeing into the wilderness. And somehow in ways that maybe we don't fully understand, um, the, the angel Michael, God in some way has has transported you. We don't know what all is going on there. But certainly we know that you would be desperate, right? You would be filled with fear. I would. And think about this. Desperate people are typically easy prey for those who offer them relief, right? We see this all the time with faith healers. We see it all the time with with other charlatans that are out there that are offering people you know, promises that God never made. But because people are desperate, they're, they're running around all the time looking to find out where they can cash in on God and get all their diseases healed and all of those types of things. But by this time, the expectations of these people that are fleeing, who will now be those who are, are coming to grips with the reality of who Messiah really is, by this time the expectations of the Messiah are at a fever pitch. Remember now, there's been famine, there's been pestilences, there's been earthquakes. We, we've looked at much of that. There's disease, there's, there's millions dying uh, in, in the wars. The world is basically disintegrating. And the human and demonic agents of Antichrist are, are butchering the, 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 the Jewish remnant and, and other Gentile Christians that have come to Christ. And even non-believing Jews. And this will continue according to Revelation 17.6 until they are drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So Satan through Antichrist is wanting to exterminate anybody and everybody that has anything to do with the person that he hates with a consuming hatred. And that is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Well, obviously, if you were in that situation, you would be in what I would call survival mode. You've witnessed scenes that beg language. Antichrist is after you. You're trying to survive. You're terrified, yet you're excited. You're looking for the Lord. Suddenly, you're probably surrounded by people you don't know, strangers. You're desperate for the Lord to come. And dear friends, you would be vulnerable. And the Lord knows that. And then suddenly, some demonic phony stands up and says, I am the Christ. Or says, hey, you know what? He's over there in the inner room. Or he's over there. He's over there on that mountain. Come on, let's go see him. And Jesus in his infinite love is saying, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. These demonic powers... Are, or these, these demonic people are going to have powers of that day, even as many of them have to this day. The, the, the Word of God tells us here that they're going to try to validate their claims with great signs and wonders. By the way, Satan never changes his tactics, does he? The same old tricks. And they're, they're always designed to mislead. Always designed to deceive. But it's interesting, the text says, but not the elect. Why not the elect? Well, you know Why? Because those who are truly born again, who, are truly, who have truly been transformed by the power of God, have the indwelling spirit within them that will never allow a chosen one to somehow be plucked out of the Lord's hand and to somehow follow some false Christ. 
That's not going to happen. In fact, Jesus says in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I have eternal life. Or I, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So friends, the Jewish fugitives now are vulnerable. They need to know how they can discern who the real Christ is because Jesus is warning them that in the midst of this chaos, there are going to be false witnesses that will arise. John MacArthur says something interesting on this point, and I quote, Those protected ones will nevertheless be under verbal assault. Satan will vigorously try to use the turmoil of the times to undermine the confidence of the refugees and to persuade them to follow a false Messiah who would immediately betray them to the Antichrist once they were outside God's sanctuary. With the world falling apart, the stars falling, the sun and moon being radically reduced in light, millions dying from disease and starvation, and thousands of their fellow countrymen having been mercilessly slaughtered, the fugitives will be emotionally drained and utterly vulnerable to the subterfuge of the false Christs and prophets, were it not for God's gracious provision." Now think about it. Had Jesus stopped right, right here at this point, at verse 26, and said, you know, be careful if they tell you these things. Don't listen to them. What do you think the people would ask in that day? Well, if we're not supposed to listen to them, what are we supposed to listen to? What, what are we supposed to look for here? Naturally, that question will arise. How are we going to discern fact from fiction? How will we be able to recognize you? And I love it what he says, beginning um, actually in verse 25. He says, Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. And here's the answer. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Dear friends, this brings us to maybe the third sign that you would see in this passage of Scripture. I would call it the dazzling display, if you want to keep with the D's here. A dazzling dis display. This is probably a reference to His glorious shining, His Shekinah glory as He manifested Himself frequently throughout the Word of God, through, throughout redemptive history. This will be the effulgence of His glory. No one will be able to miss it. Again, notice, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Let me translate that for you. Don't worry, you'll know when it's me. There will be no mistake. Now think about lightning. What a great imagery here. Obviously, the infinite, omniscient mind of God is using it. What happens when you see lightning? Well, first of all, it comes instantly. And it typically comes, well, it always comes, on the heels of thunder. Many times deafening thunder. And as I understand it, the closer the lightning is to the thunder, the closer the lightning is to the ground. I think that's how it works. And when lightning comes, it never goes unnoticed, right? It's not like... Hey, did you see that lightning? No, I didn't, I didn't see that. No, everybody sees it. Nobody misses it. And when lightning comes, everything stops, doesn't it? It's like, whoa, 
It's, it's an awesome spectacle, a glorious spectacle, even a terrifying spectacle. And even if the lightning, what the Lord is saying, even if it, even if it comes up in the east, people in the west are able to see it. In other words, it, it's going to be public here. Beloved, this adds new meaning to the grand finale, okay? This is the point. Revelation 1, verse 7. We read uh, another description of Christ's experience, uh, appearance. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And in Psalm 97, verses 1 through 19, the psalmist even describes this scene. I want you to listen to this. There the Spirit of God tells us, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou art the Lord most high over all the earth. Thou art exalted Above all gods. Beloved, what, what a glorious spectacle this will be. In, in, in the darkness, the physical and spiritual darkness of that time uh, of, of redemptive history, suddenly the sky will be illumined with the brilliance of His glory. Nobody will miss it. By the way, Jesus predicted this once before. Remember in Acts one eleven, you read of the flabbergasted awestruck disciples are watching Jesus uh, ascend back into heaven. And the two angels said to them, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Child of God, let me pause for a second. This is the Jesus that I love. This is the Jesus that I worship. This is the Jesus that, that I serve. And I know for most, if not all of you, it's the same. And please hear me. This is not a description of some effeminate peacenik that's walking around extolling the inherent goodness of man and somehow winking at sin and preaching that we need to consider all other religions and, and be tolerant of all other faiths and that tolerance is some great virtue here. And indeed, God is, is, is a, a God of mercy and a God of grace. He is the one, the Lord Jesus, the one that's going to be coming, appeased the very wrath of God. But He is also a holy God. He is the Lord of hosts. He is an avenging God. One that is going to come in mighty power. An awesome God. One who is coming in judgment. And we must never forget this. In Revelation 19, there's a description of his coming. In verse 12, it says, his eyes are a flame of fire. In verse 15 and following, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Friends, I ask you, is this the Jesus that you worship? Now, I'm not talking about this plain church thing that is so typical of our culture. But if this is the Jesus that you worship, this will be the Jesus that you fear. This will be the Jesus that you serve. This will be the Jesus that will cause you to tremble at His Word. This will be the Jesus that you will love and make the priority of your life so that nothing else in your life has any significance in comparison to worshiping and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming again in power and great glory. And it's tragic, the sentimental, superficial evangelicalism of our day has utterly eviscerated the very heart of the character of God by somehow cutting out His holiness, His, his otherness, His utter transcendence. Because, friends, if He is holy as He says He is, and I believe He is, then that means that He utterly hates sin with a holy hatred. And He will never allow sin to go unpunished. And a day is coming, dear friends, when the full fury of His wrath is going to be unleashed. This is very different than the Jesus that is presented in the neo-evangelical circles of our day. The purpose-driven life type of Jesus. How sad to think of all those who, according to Romans 2.5, are full of stubbornness and an unrepentant heart. And here's what the Spirit of God says. You are storing up wrath against yourself. For the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Some will say, oh, come on, preacher, stop the hellfire and brimstone. No, my friends, I cannot and I will not because of my love for you and my love for the Lord. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And again, my friends, a day of judgment is coming. A day of judgment beyond my ability to describe. And the simple fact of the matter is this. Those who have refused to trust in Christ and Savior as Savior and worship Him as Lord will have nothing to save them when they stand in His holy presence. They will be empty-handed. In fact, the prophet Zephaniah tells us in Verse 18 of chapter 1, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of His jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for He will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Well, Jesus reveals the unmistakable sign that will distinguish Him from all the rest. In verse 27, this lightning that comes. But also, if I can give you a fourth and final sign, he gives not only the signs of death and destruction, of demonic deception, and of, and of a dazzling display, but fourthly, the sign of disposition of decaying corpses. Verse 28, he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You know, we've all seen vultures circling over dead animals. Those of us that hunt, we know that that many times, even when you fire a gun, that's a trigger that will, that will cause the vultures to come. I've been out just target practicing and suddenly seen vultures come because they've learned that when they hear that shot, there's going to be a carcass around. We've all seen that. Now, perhaps we don't know for sure. I certainly don't want to force this. Perhaps this is a literal description of, of vultures hovering. 
one describing the inevitable carnage of, of war and disease and disaster. I know because I've been there. When you look at the, you get on the cliffs over the Dead Sea or, or the hills of Moab and, and Edom, you can see for, for miles and miles and miles, I don't know how many miles, probably over 100 miles, and um, especially given the enormous numbers of, of carry-on that frequent that region of the world, combined with the, with the millions of, of scattered corpses that there will be, um, maybe this is a, a literal thing that we need to understand. Or perhaps it's a, a proverb of that day, picturing the carcass of a spiritually dead and decaying people awaiting the final disposition of that corpse, a disposition that would be carried out by the consuming fire of the Lord as He comes in His righteousness, avenging Himself, an event that will be, shall we say, as visible as vultures would be hovering over a corpse and certainly a judgment that is well symbolized by the same. Whatever it is, it's going to be a horrific time for those who have mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16 says, They will say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. In chapter 16, beginning in verse 10, it says that unregenerate men will gnaw their tongues because of pain. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. But friends, what a merciful God to give such detailed warning to those who will repent in those final hours. And I, I rejoice, I hope you do, as we reflect upon the consummation of man's rule upon the earth. These events will ultimately end that, that proud, self-righteous rebellion of God's chosen people. The partial hardening of Romans 11 will finally cease. Their hearts will become soft and tender to the Savior. And certainly, as we, as we read in Scripture, in verse 25 of Romans 11, that will be the, the, the time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's preservation of His chosen people is such a marvelous picture, isn't it? Of His long-suffering nature, of His merciful character. Jeremiah 31, beginning in 34 Here's what the Lord says through the prophet. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it waves and roars. The Lord of hosts is his name. And here's what he says. If this fixed order, referring to all that he just described, if this fixed order departs from before me, in other words, if all of this, if I can't control this anymore, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. And obviously the point is that's not going to happen. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we serve, dear friends. Philip Bliss captured it so well. And that great hymn, the last verse of that great hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Here's what he says. You'll remember it. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, this anew, or then anew, this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the glorious truths that You give us in Your Word. May they find a place in our heart and bear much fruit and cause us to be excited about Your plan of redemption and of Your sovereignty, knowing that all that You have decreed will be accomplished. And Lord, also we would pray for those who do not know You as Savior and Lord. I pray that You will convict them, that You will cause them to bow the knee before You and confess their sin and ask You to be merciful to them and to cry out for that salvation that You will so quickly grant those whose hearts are truly broken over their sin. May this even be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.